the movie Contact is a science fiction movie that explores the inevitability of faith, even in a world governed by scientific logic. Now, when I thought of this illustration, I said, yeah, this is a good one. Then I realized, I looked it up, this movie's 25 years old, and then I felt old, and I realized, oh, not everyone's probably watched this now anymore. Uh, anyway, encourage you, it's a great movie, really encourage you. Uh, movie talking about the inevitability of faith. It, it, the plot follows uh, a female astronaut, Ellie Arroway. And when we were first introduced to Ellie, as a young girl, we're told that her mother died during uh, childbirth and that she has a close and remarkable relationship with her father. They do everything together. They're closely tied. But as a 12-year-old, her father dies of a heart attack in her presence. Obviously, Ellie is grief-stricken and she's alone. She carries that feeling of being alone throughout her whole life. And in this moment, Ellie grows up and she longs for the contact of life beyond this world, partly because she wants to answer the question, we are not alone. She's convinced that in this universe, we cannot be the only life in it. That would be a waste of space. We cannot be alone. As a scientist, she dismisses the faith in God because of absence of empirical proof Ironically, she maintains a belief in aliens even when she, there is no evidence for it. I'm going to ruin a little bit of the movie, but you still watch it because it's worth it, right? Ellie is transformed, however, when she actually makes contact with alien beings. She travels through deep space through this wormhole, but she can't convince the skeptics when she returns because she lacks scientific proof, because her body never left the earth. And it was for just a moment for everyone else. But she spent time with aliens. And she finally realized not everything that is true can be reduced to scientific analysis. In many ways, this movie is about Ellie's quest for the assurance that she is not alone. Her search has been for aliens, and in that search, she discovers the inevitability of faith. No one wants to be alone. I mean, there are times when we want space, where we want a distance from people and time to ourselves, but no one wants the feeling of loneliness. We don't want to be alone. The pandemic has taught us that loneliness is an epidemic in our culture. Isolation wreaks havoc on our mental and physical well-being. The Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago has actually studied the issue of loneliness on the physical well-being, that they, the people that are actually alone, that their cells begin to change and the way they operate. Loneliness has an impact on us physically. When you're mentally alone, you're actually also physically alone, and your body responds to it. John 14, 8, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I 
will come to you. Jesus, in a sense, is promising you will not be alone. You're going to feel abandoned. You're going to feel alone, but you will not be alone. You will not be lonely. And loneliness, I mean, there's lots of ways we can describe loneliness, but the way I want to, de- to uh, describe and define loneliness in this moment is that loneliness is a spiritual condition of being separated from God. There's loneliness because we have no one around us, no family or no friends, certainly. But what I want to think about loneliness as a spiritual condition of being separated from God, that the consequence of sin being separated from God. The experience that we may have, that some of us have, of being alone, the, the fear of loneliness that we may have, are all symptoms of this spiritual condition of loneliness. Loneliness, and it's a spiritual condition and a physical reality, is always bad. It's never a good thing. And all of that, the physical condition of being alone and the, the, the spiritual condition of being alone are all a result of the universal brokenness of the world. It's all a result of the consequence of sin in our world. And in this passage, Jesus promised, you will not be alone. You will not be alone. And he's mostly honing on to the spiritual condition. You will not be alone. And we're talking about that God has remedy for loneliness because he's going to deal with sin. Last week I used this same passage and we talked about the promise of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one who falls down beside us. And we talked about that, that the Holy Spirit is our ever-present teacher. He's our ever-present enabler. He's our uh, ever-present reminder. And then, but this week, there's something else. There's a promise in this passage as well, beyond the, the Holy Spirit as dealing with our loneliness. There's also another remedy for loneliness in this passage. It's the resurrection. The resurrection is the remedy for our loneliness. The resurrection remedies our loneliness by giving us life, not just physical life, but eternal spiritual life, life to its fullest in its abundance forever. And the resurrection remedies our loneliness by giving us faith in the midst of doubt, in the midst of sometimes no empirical proof, trusting in the God. And the resurrection remedies our loneliness by giving us peace. Peace that makes no sense. The resurrection remedies our loneliness by giving us life, this life in abundance. John 14, 9. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. The immediate context of this passage is we thought it seems to be about the gifting of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is talking about the resurrection. You will see me, but the world will not see me. Like I, I'm going away, but then you will see me. But the, the whole world, the, the, the structured order of the world, they will not see me. You see what happens when Jesus resurrects. He drops out of the spiritual sight of most of the world. 
he comes to the 12 and to his disciples. And it was about 500 people that see Jesus resurrected. But most everyone else never get to see the empirical proof, the resurrected Jesus. It's, it's, I think it's a metaphor, not just of physically seeing him, but you spiritually, you cannot see him. In fact, interestingly enough, even when Jesus is physically resurrected, when he first introduced himself as resurrected person to his apostles, which he spent three years with, breaking bread, they still didn't identify him. Something had to happen. Usually the breaking of the bread was usually the thing that, that connotated to some, or, or the catching of the fish, the breaking of the fish. Dro- Jesus drops out of spiritual sight for many. In John 8, 21, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He's talking to the world here, right? So I'm going to go away. In John 8, he's talking about the resurrection. You're going to try to seek after me, but you cannot see me. Why can you not see God? Because of sin. Because you're, you're separated from him. There is distance between you and God. You see, Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he defeats death and now he lives with us. Now he's given us a promise that he comes and resurrected life, that he lives and defeats death. He's defeated the curse of death, he's defeated the curse of sin so that we can actually see him and be with him. John 14, 3 says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Who's the ruler of this world when he's talking about the world as those that are separated from God? It's Satan. What power does Satan have? Death. What are the enemies of God? Sin, Satan, death. You see, why, why Satan has no power? Well, first of all, because Jesus is God. He is the sovereign ruler. And also because by the cross, he defeats the power of Satan, death. He has no power over Jesus. He's resurrected. They try to kill him. In John 6, 56 through 58, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. If you remember that word abide, right? That's that used in John. That's, the, that's that same word to dwell. Abide and dwell, that to, to make a room with it, right? God resides with us. He dwells with us, and we dwell with him. As the fa- in the connection to the, the cross, the crucifix. As the living Father sent me, Jesus says, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now he's talking about the bread for the man in heaven, which is spiritual food, physical food that God spiritually gives in the exodus, in the wilderness to his people. And here he says, look at whoever abides in me, whoever feeds on me, whoever is connected to me is connected to my death and resurrection. There's a spiritual connection, which, no, which takes away the separation and lets you abide and dwell with God and God to dwell with us. The living God, the one who's the author and creator of life. 
You see, you and I, at the cross and his resurrection, what Jesus does is he unites us to him who is life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is what the cross does, is that we are united to him, this mystical union. If we partake of Christ, if we are connected to him, we will have life. Because everything that's united to Jesus is united to life. It's this thing that we're going to do today. This communion. The symbol of this communion is what this we're talking about. This, this is the communion. It spiritually feeds us just as much as the sermon and the word of God spiritually feeds us. Just in a different manner. This is the word of God visualized. made So we can see it. It's tangible. And so we, we are fed by it. We partake in it. It connects us. It shows us. It symbolizes that we are united with him when we take him in. It's, right, we know this is not physically Jesus, but spiritually, he's present in these elements when we drink of him. It, it's why you think about our sacraments. Baptism. Baptism doesn't require expression of faith. You mean, wait, 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 it can happen, but baptism doesn't require, because baptism is the symbol of what God does for us. It's his promise. He declares, he baptizes. This table is a symbol that faith needs to be expressed at. We'll fence the table later. Only those that express faith in God, that I trust in what he has done, and we repeat this act over and over again. Baptism, God doesn't need to repeat his act. We repeat this act over and over, that we trust in him. We express that faith in him, that this will nurture us. That's why we don't come to the table if you don't have faith. It makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. And why it makes no sense, if you, you, if you to not be baptized... Baptism is God's symbol that God has chosen to the visible church. This is the act of those that actually express faith. There's an order to those things. That this feeds us. We are never lonely because we are eternally united and connected to Jesus, who is the life. John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never live, die. Do you believe this? What an interesting question. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And if you partake in him, and you dwell in him, and he dwells in you, that you shall never die, that you should be fed which segues into our next point. The resurrection remedies our loneliness by giving us life. The resurrection remedies our loneliness by giving us faith. John 14, 20. In that day, Jesus says, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. In that day, the day of resurrection, Jesus says, we will be given a spiritual knowledge. You will know. That spiritual knowledge is faith. You will know. Much like Ellie 
learned in the movie Contact that, that not all empirical evidence can show us the truth. There's some things that are true that don't have empirical evidence. Well, you and I have never seen the resurrected Jesus. And yet you have faith and you trust. How is that? That, that is a gift of God. The, the apostles, well, they didn't understand it until he revealed that gift to them. You will know it's a spiritual gift that the, that's the Spirit of God gives to us. Faith is the gift of knowledge that Jesus is Lord, that he is with us, and we are not alone. The resurrection was the gift of empirical knowledge. There was evidence of the resurrection, particularly to the 12 and to 500 and to the immediate others. They got to see him, but not everyone gets to see him. John 14, 29. And now Jesus says, I have told you before, it takes place. So when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus says, the purpose of my resurrection is so that you actually believe who I am. All the miracles that Jesus does in the Gospels always points to who he is. The purpose of everyone is not for what they actually do, but actually to point that he is God. So it is with the greatest and last miracle, the resurrection, to point to who he is, that he is the life, and we are never alone. All of that is to impart faith into us. Acts 17, 30-31, the times of ignorance, were the times of ignorance, the times that we have no faith, the times that we do not have that spiritual knowledge, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The witness and the evidence of the resurrection give faith, give assurance to some, not all, and to others, it gives judgment. To some it gives faith, and to some it gives judgment. The resurrection remedies our loneliness by, by giving us life, by imparting faith upon us, and also the remedies our loneliness by giving us peace, a peace that makes no sense. John 14, 27 through 28. I'm really regretting not wearing shorts today. <laughs> peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoice, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, this, this word peace, uh, if you go back to the Hebrew root of it, it is uh, shalom. We, we know this word, and shalom is not, peace is not the absence of conflict. That's not what this word means. It is a holistic word, which better understanding is that in harmony with all things, that you will have, Jesus says, you will have my peace. You will have my harmony with all things, including God, including the Father, and with all the created order. You will have harmony. Now, that peace seems really hard to have in this world, doesn't it? 
That peace is really hard to have in this world because this world is totally corrupted. You and I are totally corrupted. It's broken. There was a peace, a harmony between humans and the created order before the fall. Sin breaks that order. There is no harmony. There is no peace. And yet God breaks in here with the resurrection and says, you can have my peace in the midst of all of this craziness. The peace which makes no sense. This is the gift that God gives. Peace is the the new order or the, the kingdom of God breaking into our hearts and into the world. It is the the resurrection which defeats sin and its curse and its power. That corrupted order of sin. When we talk about peace on this earth, right, we, I mean, the Romans, Pax Romano, right? They had this extended period of peace. You know how long that Pax Romano was? It's like 100 years. It's like, you know, it's like 20, 27 BC to 100 AD, right in the time of Jesus. That's when they declared like, there was peace in the empire and everything was under control. There was no conflict. Yet does that accord to actually you read and understand about the Roman Empire at that time? Do you know how they kept that peace? With a mighty sword. You speak out against them, they're going to kill you. They'll put you on a cross and hang you in public. This is how they kept the peace. Violence bestowed kept their peace, which only lasted for about a hundred years. The peace of God, the peace of God which can live in this world was won by God on a cross. Violence absorbed. I just want you to think about what God we'd follow. We don't follow the emperor. We follow the God that absorbs Violence, not bestows violence upon others. John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Once again, right, that connection with Jesus, united in Jesus. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I just want you to think about things he just said there. In me you will have peace. But I know you're in the world, and guess what? In this world, uh, by your standards, there will not be peace. There'll be tribulation. There'll be hardships. But he has overcome the world. His peace will win out. His peace reigns forever. There will be a day in the resurrection for all of us when there is complete harmony with all of creation. When there's complete harmony with all humans, with all the children of God, with God himself, where there is no conflict, where there's harmony, where we all work together. One will. This world is filled with tribulation, this chaos, this this anti-peace, and we know it, we see it around us, we see it in our own hearts, because this is what sin does. Sin separates Sin creates loneliness. All right, I'm going to get a little political here, but years ago, so that's okay, right? (laughs) You think about how this country was formed, it's the United States. 
basically a bunch of independent states that had their own mind and their own will and their own desires and their own want to rule themselves. But they come together for just a moment to be united in what? They weren't united in their rule. They weren't united in what they wanted to do. They were united against a common enemy, the king who was oppressing them. That we can get behind. And as soon as that's done, do they stay united? Do they stay peaceful? No. No. That's because this is how the peace of the world works. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't last. It's no, there's no harmony in that. Any peaceful conflict in the world. I mean, I grew up in a time where, I mean, I'm living the 80s all over again. Where every movie and every reality is the conflict was we were against Russia. This is what the whole thing is against now. But there was a time when we had peace. Peace. Lack of conflict. Never harmony. Never harmony. This is what God promises. This is what the resurrection accomplishes. That peace. Sin separates Sin creates the order of selfishness, which is anti, the antithesis of harmony, or of malice, of anxiety and fear. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, or uh, what Eugene Peterson says, which makes no sense, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the promise of God, that his peace, which he is united to you by his resurrection, will guard your hearts and your minds in this world of tribulation. The resurrection remedies sin, starts to usher in the harmony that existed in the created order before the law that will exist in the new world, in the new heaven. This is what God promises, the harmony that exists between God and his people. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. We still exist in a world of sin, a world of chaos. The resurrection allows us, allows Jesus to bestow his peace upon us by defeating sin, chaos, Satan, death. The peace of God is given to us to rule our hearts as a garrison for the invasion of anxiety that the world continually tries to sell us. The world offers loneliness and separation and they package it as something fantastic. God gives peace in unity. John 14, 8, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus will not leave us to loneliness. He will not leave us alone. The resurrection remedies our loneliness by bestowing upon us life, bestows upon us faith, and bestows upon this peace, this everlasting harmony. Just in the movie contact, Ellie quests for her life and her assurance that she is not alone. So is the same with us. We are constantly searching for the assurance that we are not alone, that we have meaningful, connected relationships with people. Maybe you're looking for that in aliens. 
I'm not alone because there's aliens out there. Maybe you're looking for that. You can find a companion in your life, a soulmate, a spouse. But here's the thing. All those answers are even temporary solutions. They don't bring peace, and they don't remove the loneliness. The loneliness, which is a spiritual condition. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only assurance, knowledge, only through faith, against loneliness, against the separation caused by sin. And Jesus promises he will come to us and he will never leave us. He imparts the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. Here now, Jesus and his resurrection remedy loneliness. In the search for the remedy of loneliness, may we discover the inevitability of Jesus. The inevitability of faith. The truth that Jesus died and was resurrected. That this is his work to bring us united in him, never alone. Let us pray. Gracious Father, loving Son and ever-present Holy Spirit, I thank you that even in my loneliness, even in my chaotic sin, even in my anxiety, that you have defeated and you have claimed victory and that you are present. Lord, I know there's people here that live in that same kind of anxiety and that same kind of loneliness. Lord, remind us the, the assurance that you are the life giver, that you are the faith giver, that you are the peace giver because we are never alone because what you have done and what you have given. Remind us of that today and do it again tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.